0: Anyway, so, uh, yeah, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming this morning. Um, thanks for joining us. So, yeah, so my wife is Becky. We have uh, three daughters, uh, one in high school, one in middle school, one in fifth grade. So we have a lot of talking in our family. It's the way we like it in our family. Um, yeah, so if you were here last time last week, so last week uh Brandon who's one of the other pastors here, he started preaching through the book of Philippians. So we're kind of just going to be ploughing through that book over the next couple months. So uh so last week Brandon explained how the apostle Paul and his crew, they planted the church, planted uh um The church in the city of Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece today, so Paul planted the church around 50 A.D. on one of his missionary journeys. So, in this letter from Paul to the Philippian church, that was written about 10 years later after it was planted. So, River City, we are about a five-year-old church plant. uh, Church in Philippi, it's about a 10-year-old church plant at this time. Yeah, and Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians while he's while he's far away in prison. So he's being guarded by Roman soldiers day and night, and most historians assume that he was literally chained to. A Roman guard, like um, a palace guard right there, like at all times, which sounds really terrible. So and while Paul was in prison, he just wrote this course letter of correspondence to uh, the church in Philippi. So when they received this letter from Paul, like in the church in Philippi, uh, during their worship gathering, gathering, they read it out loud, just kind of like we're doing today. So so the passage that we're in this morning uh, starts in chapter 1, verse 12, and that will be up on the screen. So I'll read it there. So, verse twelve, chapter one, verse twelve. Paul says, "Now I want I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, most of the brothers brothers and sisters, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear." Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will, find what will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, Will abound on account of me. So the theme of this sermon is confidence in suffering. Confidence in suffering. So in this in this passage, like there's just a lot of things that we can uh, see about why we can have confidence in suffering. But we're gonna have only have time to like really unpack two of those ways. So we can have confidence in suffering through trusting God to use our suffering and redeem it, and we can have confidence in suffering through focusing on Christ and not more, not, and not focusing more on others. So Let's pray. So God, um, we really need you for this. Like, um, I am inadequate for that task. Like, we know that your word is just as profitable and your spirit, like, um, just uses that. So we pray that, like, your word will become opera. You'll just empower the word to be operational in our hearts and minds and lives. And um, pray you'll speak through me as well. Yeah you'll align our hearts and minds with like, um, with yours. And yeah, we can't white nickel, knock white knuckle our way, um, into that God through self-determination or anything. So yeah, I need you for that. We all need you for that. And we love you. Amen. So like I mentioned a few weeks ago, Paul, or a few minutes ago, Paul is writing this from prison. So so Paul had several whirlwind missionary journeys throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. So he was planting churches but um, throughout those whirlwind missionary journeys. But prison is actually the thing that God used to finally slow down Paul enough to write letters that were uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit and thus were included in the Bible. And in this letter, it's clear that the believers in Philippi were tremendously distressed because their leader, that they trusted and respected and adored, was unjustly in prison under the watch of the palace guard and was literally in chains. This was very, very distressing to them. And Paul lets his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi know that his unjust imprisonment is actually being used by God to advance the gospel, Because, verse 13, it had become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that he was in chains for Christ. He was presumably telling these guards, which he was, like I said, he was likely chained to, about Jesus, like it was Paul was in captivity, but this is a very captive audience that he had right there. Like, they aren't getting away from him. And not only that, but verse 14, Paul says that most of the other brothers and sisters in Christ have been emboldened through Paul's example of suffering in prison to take meaningful risks in proclaiming the gospel without being paralyzed by fear. So God was sovereignly using and redeeming Paul's suffering. Paul's suffering wasn't being wasted. Paul then transitions into telling the Philippians in verses 15 through 19 about when he's been in prison. Some people have been missionally telling their friends and neighbors and coworkers about Jesus with good motives, while some were being missional with the purpose of stirring up trouble for Paul. And I started following Jesus when I was in college, and I remember reading this then and in subsequent years, and I was about this situation that Paul is describing. I was like, people are telling, like, um, preaching Jesus for the purpose of stirring up trouble for Paul. Like, I don't I don't understand anything about that. And I'm not old, but I think as the older I get, I think that that makes more sense now to me because sometimes people just do ministry stuff for a lot of really complicated, strange reasons. Um, so and this is true for Paul as well. So... But Paul is unfazed by this in verse 18. He says, but what does it matter? Christ is being preached from a variety of mixed motives. So even in that, God is using and redeeming Paul's suffering. And that's a reason for Paul to rejoice. And Paul continues to rejoice in verse 19 because he's certain that through the prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Holy Spirit, what has happened to Paul will turn out for his deliverance. And when it says it'll turn out for his deliverance, like what does that mean? Does that mean deliverance in terms of like he's gonna spring him from jail and like he's just gonna deliverance from prison? Or does it mean deliverance in like a um in the sense of man, he's gonna be with Jesus like when like he die if he dies and they're in prison. So and the reality is that Paul might have intentionally left that ambiguous because he could have been referring to either one. And that makes sense because in Paul's mind either scenario has some pretty strong upsides. Deliverance from prison, that's good, of course. Like if but if you but if he's delivered just like has eternal deliverance, well that's really good too, which he says that's better by far. Like yeah, and that same, like, and he, yeah, he might have been referring to both there. I really think he, because, like, that same phylum of reasoning that he uses for that, like, that's used in the next, like, few verses. Verse 20, he wants Christ to be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. What does that mean? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a very short and succinct way of Paul saying that no matter what happens, there's no actual downside to live is to serve and follow Christ because Paul's life was defined by Jesus. And if he dies, he counts that as gain because, verse 23, when he departs, that means he is with Christ, which he says is better by far. Paul says, when I depart, I am with Christ. So according to Paul, there is no intermediate state after we die. And like after we die, there is no cosmic holding cell or weird waiting room that we have to stay in before we can be with Christ. No, like Paul says, when I depart, I am with Christ, which is better by far. That's why death and departing from this life as a follower of Christ can be summed up by Paul as gain. So regardless of whether Paul, God allows Paul to bust out of his chains or if he's put to death in prison, verse 22, Paul says, if I go on living in this body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is experiencing hardship and suffering in this passage, but his outlook and perspective on it is jolting. Because Paul seems to have this authentic, non manufactured outlook and a non manufactured confidence in suffering. Like I said, we're going to be talking about like two ways that we see from this passage that we can have confidence in suffering. But before I do that, I just um, want to talk about uh, two things that—reasons why um, it's hard to talk about suffering. One is—there's a lot of reasons why it's hard to talk about suffering, not just in a sermon, but just in general. But, so um, one is that suffering is often like a really personal and loaded topic. Um, Because when we suffer, we often don't suffer in compartmentalized ways. Like when we suffer, like suffering affects all of who we are, like emotionally, socially, physically, and all those things are spiritual in one way or another. I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons why like preparing this sermon last week, I just kind of had heartburn just talking about it and uh, or just preparing it just because like it's just often is just a really loaded and personal topic. To talk about. But another thing that makes it challenging to talk about suffering is that we often have false and unhelpful beliefs about suffering. And we could have a whole sermon series about false and unhelpful beliefs about suffering, but I'll just mention one of the one false and unhelpful belief about suffering, and that is that suffering only counts if it's big. Suffering only counts if it's really bad. And I have to be suffering in a really big way for it to actually matter. And if you want to put a Christian spin on that, it's like suffering, like, I need to be suffering in a big way for it to actually matter to God. I mean, there's a, there's a legion of problems with that line of thinking, but one of them is the reality that, like, everyone who experiences suffering in any kind of way can always find someone who's suffering worse. So by that logic, so you just, no one can admit that they're having a hard time, like in ever? Like, is that how the Bible frames suffering? And in one way or another, what that false belief assumes about God is that he has a very limited bandwidth and a very limited interest in your suffering, and you need to prove to him that your pain and your frustration and your hardship is actually worth his time. But the truth is that God is an infinitely good father with an, infinitely, an infinite bandwidth and an infinite heart, and therefore he is infinitely invested in the trials and the suffering and, and the hardships of his children. That's why James chapter 1, like we're in Philippians 1 today, but like, man, it was James 1, it's just like, which is another book in the New Testament right there. Um, in James 1, it says, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. So when your kids are throwing up for the third time this winter, that is a trial of many kinds. When you make a really bad financial decision that has cascading effects on you for the next 20 years, that is a trial of many kinds. When your supervisor gives you a bunch of work at 3 p.m. on a Friday, that is a trial of many kinds. When you live in Ukraine and you are, um, your family has to dodge mortar shells from an invading army, that is a trial of many kinds. Like when, you're, when you are planning a vacation that is hoping to be ref- actually refreshing, um, but it needs to be rescheduled again, that is a trial of many kinds. When you, when you receive a diagnosis that radically alters the course of your family's life that you did not plan for, that's a trial of many kinds. When you're having a rough patch with a friend, that is a trial of many kinds some of you have an anemic understanding of god's heart and bandwidth for what you're going through god is not standing over you with his arms crossed telling you to suck it up and please only talk to me when you th- you're actually having a hard time and we all understand the we all understand why people compare our we, we understand the impulse of why people compare our sufferings like to someone else's so that we can gain perspective. We all know that. But some of you need to hear this. shaming yourself into thinking that your suffering doesn't matter or count. That's not spiritual or mature. Because God is an infinitely good father who has an infinite heart and an infinite bandwidth. And because of that, because that's true, then all of our suffering matters to him. And God's heart is that we would have confidence in all of our suffering and not just the stuff that we think is big and dramatic. So we can see at least two reasons why we can have suffering, excuse me, why we can have confidence in suffering in Philippians in our passage today. So the first one is that we can have confidence in suffering, in suffering through trusting God to use it and redeem it by trusting God to use it and redeem it. So I met with a person last week who has experienced a lot of suffering of many kinds. And he said that one of the most helpful and beneficial things that he's ever heard someone say about suffering and hardship is because God is sovereign, that he isn't going to waste his suffering. Because God is sovereign, he's not going to waste our suffering. In other words, what my friend was saying was that He's trusting that God is going to be using his suffering and redeeming his suffering in some way for God's purposes and God's timing. Like he's not going to waste it. And I know he's not going to waste it because the Bible describes God as being fully engaged and fully active and fully sovereign over all of life. Like We had our annual membership class a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday, and this is one of the things that we talked about. We talked about how like, oh, in the overall scope of Scripture, we see how God is sovereign over seemingly random things. He's sovereign over our daily lives and plans. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over life and death. He's sovereign over disabilities. He's sovereign, he was sovereign over the death of Jesus. He's sovereign over evil things, and he's sovereign over all things in general. He's sovereign over everything, but keep in mind that Scripture fully and simultaneously teaches two things: one, we are willing creatures who make willing choices, and two, God is absolutely sovereign over our lives and choices and everything. And I know that sounds like it sh- it shouldn't make sense, but but Scripture fully teaches both of those things as true because be- because from God's point of view, like those things are ultimately compatible. It's kind of like when a parent uh, tries to explain algebra to their two-year-old. I don't know why you'd want to explain algebra to your two-year-old, so maybe this is a terrible example. But like, if you're explaining algebra to your two-year-old, um, it doesn't matter how well you explain algebra to your two-year-old. Like, they're not going to understand it. And when it comes to trying to understand God's sovereignty, we don't often, don't often adequately account for that God is infinitely complex, more complex, and infinitely more wise than us. Kind of like a parent is with, compared to a t- their two-year-old, and I only just extrapolate that out way more. Like, if, if God is infin- as infinitely wise and complex as he describes himself to be in Scripture, should it surprise us? That we see in some things in scripture that might seem a bit contradictory, but ultimately they're true and compatible? Because algebra makes sense and is true regardless of whether your two year old fully understands it. But when you're two years old, you don't need to fully understand it. Like, you can just trust your mom and dad that it's true. And as one theologian once said, God loves us enough to stoop down to us and speak baby talk to us. And in a lot of ways, like, that's scripture itself is God's way of stooping down to us and speaking baby talk to us and um, and explaining some really complex things to us, you know. And God's consistent message to us in scripture as he stoops down to us is that we can trust him. And when it comes to suffering, if God is as sovereign and as good as he says he is in scripture, that means that he's going to be trustworthy enough to not waste our suffering. So uh, we, uh, when we have a large amount of people at our house, um, we go to Sam's Club and we, get, we buy chicken in bulk. So we, not live chicken, like, The packaged ones. So, like, we get there, we get it, we bring it home, and then we get like open the packaging, take it out, and we get a big knife out, and then we like start like cutting off the gross parts and the bad parts. And we just like take those bad and gross parts and we throw those parts away because they're useless and they don't matter. And we just throw that away because there's no point to those parts of the chicken. And a lot of times we're tempted to—that's the way that we're tempted to understand our suffering, the unsavory and the the painful and the annoying and the anguishing parts of our lives. Just throw those parts away. Just cut them off. Throw them away. There's no actual point to any parts of those life. And maybe something good came out of it, but I'm annoyed and I'm sad and I'm disappointed. I'm kind of angry. And just throw those parts away. There was no point to them. But the good news is that not only is God sovereign, but he's also good. And because he's sovereign and good, no part of our suffering is going to be wasted. <laughs> he's not going to waste any of it. He's going to redeem it, and he's going to use it. Like he's sovereign and he's good, and he's, he'll redeem every part of it, no matter how painful or trivial you think it is. It's not like driving in it's not like driving in a car. You know, it's like we're you know, our life pretends like driving in a car and you're just looking out the windshield and you're like and you experience like suffering of some kind and you're looking out the windshield and it's like, "Man, what is what is God up to? I don't understand anything. It's really hard to see how God is using and redeeming our suffering when looking out the windshield." But on the other hand, when you look in the rearview mirror that's when you can more clearly see like what god has how god has used our suffering and redeemed our suffering that's when you can most clearly see it like out of the rearview mirror And that's the kind of stuff that the Philippians are concerned about. All this suffering that their friend Paul was going through, he was in prison, he's suffering, he's unfairly in jail. He could be out on the missions field helping people grow in the gospel and make disciples and plant churches. Like, the Philippians are looking through the windshield and they're discouraged and they're perplexed. But by God's grace, Paul is looking in the rearview mirror and reassuring them. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me, my suffering that you're, so, that you're so concerned about, that's actually, in one way or another, served to advance the gospel. The palace guards who are literally chained to me, they're hearing about Jesus. They can't get away from me. Like, my, my being in prison has emboldened others to proclaim the gospel as well. God is using my suffering. He's redeeming my suffering. He's not wasting my time here in prison. Like, my jail time isn't like the chicken at Sam's Club where you just cut it off and it doesn't matter and throw it away. Like, no, it's like, it, I know it doesn't make sense, but God is using my suffering and redeeming my suffering in his ways and in his timing for his purposes. by God's grace, like, Paul was able to get a glimpse in the rearview mirror of how God was using his suffering and redeeming it. But keep in mind that looking in the rearview mirror of our lives and seeing how God has used it and redeemed it, we're not promised to see that clearly, clearly, even in the rearview mirror. We're not promised that, and we are not entitled to that. Um... Yeah, because a lot of times that is the case. But but God's invitation to us when we're looking in the rearview mirror of our lives with our suffering isn't to obsessively interpret or try to interpret our suffering, but rather the invitation is to trust him and be comforted by him. I mean, I, bet, I bet when Paul was writing that to the Philippian church, I bet there was like some cynic in the church who was like somewhat with a cynical perspective and just like, yeah, good one, Paul. That's okay, whatever. It's nice and cute this so you think some palace guards are really being impacted by the gospel. But like your time would be better maximized and used if you weren't rotting in jail. Instead you were out like planting churches and everything. It's just like it seems like your time is being really wasted and like you're just kind to be optimistic and be have try to find a silver lining of some kind. But if we look in the rearview mirror. 2,000 years later, we have the benefit of looking 2,000 years later. We can see that in God's sovereignty and his goodness, Paul's time in prison wasn't wasted. Like during his time in prison, he wrote this letter to the Philippians that was quickly included in the New Testament. And over the last 2,000 years, God has used that letter that he wrote in prison for equipping and encouraging believers in gospel ministry. Like, arguably, I could could make the argument that Paul's time in prison might have been the most fruitful and long-term fruitful time of his entire ministry. Like, we have the benefit of seeing in the rearview mirror. Paul didn't see that fully, you know? Like, the Philippians didn't see that, but man, it's like, we can Paul, God didn't waste Paul's suffering. and He's not going to waste yours, and you can fully trust him. So we can have confidence in suffering through trusting God to use it and redeem it. We can also have confidence in suffering through focusing on Christ more than we focus on others. We can have confidence in suffering through focusing on Christ more than we focus on others. And I have... I've met a lot of suffering people who think that the pathway out of pain and suffering is to really start focusing on other people. Like, man, I'm going to focus. I'm not going to focus on myself anymore. I'm going to focus on other people. And, you know, that is... Overall, that is a good impulse. Like, I don't want to be critical of that for sure. But the pathway for suffering people to focus on others in a healthy and life-giving and sustainable way isn't simply to start focusing on others in this, like, hyper self-determined kind of way. No, from a gospel perspective, the pathway to focusing on others is to is to first put your focus on Christ. And out of the overflow of focusing on Christ, you'll be able to focus on others in healthy, life-giving ways. Like in this passage, like Paul is really focused on others. And that's a good thing. He he was suffering, but he was focused on the needs of the guards, and he was focused on the needs of the Philippians. And some of a and a really casual look at this passage will just you know, it's tempting to look, think like, you know what, when I'm having a hard time, I should focus on others like Paul, you know? And with all due respect, it, you are missing that huge E on the eye chart right in the middle, right in front of you. Like, because the only meaningful reason that Paul is able to focus on others in this passage is because he focused on Christ. Verse 13, he's in chains for Christ. The reason why he's not able to be offended by the suffering that's being inflicted on him by those weird people who are stirring up trouble for him in verse 17 is because Christ is being preached and Christ is who matters most to, to Paul. He wants Christ to be exalted in his life and death. Regardless of whether he lives or dies, Like Christ is all that matters to him. He found his identity in Christ. He's able to have confidence in suffering because he's focused first and foremost on Christ. And along those lines, notice how Paul finds his identity in Christ instead of finding his identity in how he's been sinned against by others, whether it's by like those like people who are in you know just in verse seventeen right there, or against the guards or the people who are falsely imprisoning him. You know, in our small group. Um, we're studying through 1 Peter, and like, suffering is just one of the themes in there. So there's, there's just naturally just uh, questions and discussions that come up um, about suffering like in small groups. So in small group, a few weeks ago, uh, someone in our group like, um, mentioned that like, when, often when people are sinned against, they're tempted to find their identity, not so much in Christ, but um, they're tempted to find their identity in how they've been sinned against by others. Like, I'm the person who bad things happen to. I'm the person who's been sinned against in this way. I'm the person who has, who's had this bad thing happen to. And you may not realize it, but that's identity language. And that's a problem because you are not defined by by what has happened to you. Like, you are identified, you are... um, like you are defined not by what has happened to you or by who has sinned against you you are identi- you are defined by like what G- who Jesus is and what he's done for you yeah you are you are not defined by the sum of your choices that led to any kind of self-inflicted suffering like you are first and foremost defined by Jesus and what he's done for you paul didn't find his identity in like and I'm the missionary who is falsely imprisoned and that's who I am. I'm the one, I'm the missionary who, man, people are stirring up trouble for me. Like, that's who I am. Like, no, it's like, what mat- What most clearly defined Paul was Jesus himself. And not like what others had done to him. Focusing on Jesus ultimately and not others is why, is what gave Paul, all confidence in suffering and the invitation for all of us this morning and for not and for always is to fix our eyes on jesus instead of others and fixing our eyes on jesus is all about remembering that he's the point and that includes all of our sufferings of many kinds that's why we take communion every week because we're remembering jesus the point of communion is not some kind of like going through the motions and religious ritual. It's like a time for us to collectively have a visible and symbolic reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us because ultimately, like, he defines us most. Like, the bread symbolizes his body, the drink symbolizes his blood, and those things are broken and shed for you. Like, Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we were supposed to die because of our sin against him. And as we're talking so much about suffering here this morning, don't forget, like, Jesus is the one who suffered perfectly on your behalf. Like, in his time on earth... Like, Jesus experienced the anguish of suffering. He experienced the death of a friend, the betrayal of another. He was well acquainted with emotions and sufferings of many kinds. And in the midst of those emotions and suffering, he walked perfectly in faith and was without sin. And God didn't waste his sufferings on earth. He didn't waste his sufferings on the cross. And that's how we could... um, because through his brutal death and his victorious resurrection like we're saved through putting our faith in him and because God didn't waste his sufferings that is like the window and our hope into like how God isn't going to waste our suffering. So before you take communion, you just I would encourage you just to pray and thank him for suffering on your behalf. And ask him to empower you to believe that he's not gonna waste your suffering. You can't white knuckle or convince yourself like into doing that in your own power. You really can't. You need God's empowerment for that. Because that in that way, he gets the credit for it ultimately. And he gets the glory. Like pray and ask for his empowerment to real for you to really believe that over the course of time. That's not a one thing. A one-time kind of thing, but that is something that we need to remind ourselves of, by His help, with His help, and I also encourage you to just, um, yeah, that you would just, he would empower you to focus on, um, yeah, focusing on Him instead of others or on our circumstances, and do that authentically. Don't make it a going through the motions kind of thing. Like, do that authentically. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion because. We aren't into, like, having, like, empty religious rituals or anything like that. But if you are ready to respond to him as your forgiver and as your leader, then do so, like, and pray to him and do that. And then go take communion. So, so you take the bread. There's two communion stations in the back. You take the bread. You dip it in the juice. You take communion that way. There's gonna be, the worship team is going to be up here playing three songs. And, like, you can take go and back and take communion whenever you're ready. The point is to remember Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're really thankful for you, and we love you, and thank you for being sovereign and being good and being our friend and our leader, and and we really we really need you to um, to empower us to believe that you're not going to be wasting our suffering, but also that like. Um, just to really trust in your character when we can't see out of the windshield or the rear view mirror. So yeah, thank you for the example of Paul. But Paul isn't the ultimate example, like you are Jesus. So thank you so much for like um, suffering on our behalf and like, and just walking through suffering with like, um, like in a way that we can really like admire and like just worship you as well. And we love you, amen.